Welcome to Smart Water Solutions Podcast. I am Hakim El Fadil. This is episode number 43. Today's cast is the Post, Program Director at Wetsus. Wetsus is the European center to develop sustainable water technologies. This center is combining academia and industry to solve urgent water problems, not only from one angle, but from different angles. What I mean by that is they not only look to the problem from the fundamental point of view, I mean, academic point of view, but also from the application point of view from the industry. And all the spectrum, you need so many disciplines, not only membrane chemists, but you actually need different disciplines combined in order really to solve problem and to bring meaningful, tangible uh, water solutions. So we're going to learn about the innovation pipelines of Wetsus their program for students from 12 years old up to more than 25 years old and not and also most importantly about Yen Post as an entrepreneur as someone who has very good experience in the water industry in academia and someone who's really trying to build this bridge by working at Witsus and um, the bridge between academia and industry so Yan, if you can lay out for example uh, so before you jump to the position of director in Witsus I've uh, been looking to your profile. You have achieved and contributed so many good things in the water sector. So you didn't come outside of the water, but you are from coming from the water. So if you can lay out those contributions first. Yeah, yeah well, the, um, my career started actually a little bit by mistake. Um, actually, I was really intrigued by architecture. And uh, then I came to constructions. And from construction, I came into wastewater treatment plants. That's a lot of concrete. Huh? So uh, still, it's a construction. But actually, I found out that um, the processes in, in treatment and in, in water purification are so intriguing. And that actually was a kind of curiosity-driven. Um, but of course, and that's that's something that uh, that I also notice is um, many people in the world are concerned about water, uh, water scarcity, water quality. That's something that that everyone at a certain point in time realizes. So that's also where it started off uh, with my own journey. So basically, uh, just finding out myself about water treatment. Also, of course, I took courses, uh, and, and, and in the end, I graduated in sanitary engineering. Um, but from that point, um, I started to work in an engineering company, starting with some engineering of, of water treatment plants, speci specifically in, in desalination. Okay. And from desalination, I got the principles of thermodynamics. Well, not just by, by finding out from lectures, but finding out myself just by reading and by designing. And from that point, I realized, hey, there's a big connection between energy and water. So that's actually the point where I got into harvesting energy from water treatment instead of putting in energy to treat water. And from that point, well, it all went on with the connection between water and energy. And that's why I created as well uh, a company myself on energy storage in water. Not just by pumping up water, but by actually the, the, the water matrix itself. Okay, how, would, how, this interesting. how does this work just roughly, this, uh, this concept? Yeah. Um, well, what we, what I realized from this desalination is that if you separate um, a, a, a salt water into fresh water and more saline water, it takes a lot of energy to, to, to get this process done. But if you do the opposite, you mix salt water and fresh water together, you can gain that energy. That's actually a reversible process in thermodynamics. I didn't know that by that time, but just the realization. And in the Netherlands, where I live, we live with a lot of fresh water in our country, actually too much. So we have to build dikes around our rivers, otherwise we flood from the rivers. 
And on the other side, we want, want to bring that fresh water to the sea, but we live subsurface. Uh, so we live lower on a lower level than the sea. So we have to pump up all the fresh water to seawater and uh, to, to the sea. So if you mix that, that water, instead of doing desalination, you can bring them together and mix them. Then you can harvest a lot of energy. And that's actually what we do on a daily basis. So we pump out all our fresh water to the sea. It takes us a lot of energy. Whereas actually we could harvest that energy better than that we invest energy in pumping. So you harvest energy that compensates the pumping and maybe additional energy? Yeah, it even creates additional energy. So we have to pump up, let's say, seven to 10 meters high, uh, whereas mixing of salt water, seawater, and fresh water actually um, is, has the potential of even nine times more energy. So we can create um, an energy or power plant together with pumping the water from fresh water to seawater. Uh, we even can harvest a lot of energy from that. And what, what is the principle behind this? Actually, that we have a gain in, um, in entropy if we mix that water. And that gain in entropy, we can translate to electrical energy directly. Yeah. But this is also where I did my PhD on. So after I made my first design for a desalination plant, of course, it was just a contribution to a whole research uh, or design team. Um, I actually quitted the engineering company and did my PhD in, um, on this, this principle. And we call that principle blue energy. So that was back in 2005. Yeah. Was it at that time, was it quite common to use this concept in the real industry or was it just a concept in academia? It was actually just a concept in academia. I think by that time there were around, well, maybe 20 publications, but the most recent publications were only from the 80s. And after that, the idea was basically quitted uh, by lack of, well, maybe urgency, because, well, uh, by that time there was the first oil crisis. And, well, I think then it was kind of silence for 20 years. So I was the first, together, of course, with my supervisor, I was the first taking it up again. So you can also see this in publications. If you look to the publications, you see a peak in around the, the 80s. So the idea which I had was not new. And then it was taken up by 2006, seven, my first publications. And now you see that peaking again, much higher peaks. Because it does make sense. I mean, if I look to, in, uh, I'm coming from North Africa. If I look to Morocco, Algeria, and then so many yeah, countries, they have a river all, most of the time mixed with the sea. So they have rivers is flowing to the sea. And in those countries, they don't, well, in Morocco, they don't have oil and gas. So they rely on other energy too, mm. or wind energy, solar energy. So it does make sense to have such technology in place to harvest that energy. And then they don't need to pump. It's just in the, the above the sea level. So really just to, they whistle yeah. the water in the sea. It's even better, huh, that situation. The only thing is, and that's something that is very um, important, is that you have a continuous flow of fresh water into the sea. Of course, otherwise you have to shut down your power plant. Um, so in the Netherlands, we usually have plenty of fresh water, except for the last year. So it's, it's actually also in the Netherlands, it's kind of um, difficult to implement this, this idea because at certain points in summer, we close down the water flows from, from our fresh water reserves to the sea, um, just to, to save the, the fresh water for other purposes, for drinking water, for example. And, uh, and then there's no ability to, to produce power from this. Right. So to make it uh, complete, so now there's a lot more attention for renewable energy. And the problem with renewable energy is that it's available at certain times and on other times that you need it, it's not available. So this type of energy 
of fresh water flowing into sea is available on, on um, well on a predictable uh, time scale. Huh? So you can you can choose when you discharge the water, but you can also create batteries out of it, and that's what I did with um, with finding the company Aqua Battery, um, where we use fresh and salt water to create actually a, a water battery. And we can store a lot of energy in that. Is it, uh, I mean, just on a high level, how this this water, I mean, aqua battery works? Is it just traditional battery to store energy in it or different? No, it's totally different concept. So um, we start with salt water and with fresh water. And the, actually what we do is if we have excess of energy, we for example, wind or solar energy, when we don't need it, we can actually charge this battery by separating this fresh water and salt water. If we want to use this energy, we mix them back to each other. We do it in a bit smarter way than I'm telling now because we need a, a battery, very important uh, uh, quality of a battery is the energy density. You can imagine that you cannot drive a car on this battery. It's, it's totally, unsuitable for, for, for mobile devices. But still, it's very important to couple such big batteries, storage capacities to, for example, windmill parks or solar panels. Even in home, you can do. So that's, uh, that's our aim is actually to, to build batteries for built environment, stationary batteries. So can I consider, for example, that um... What you did in your PhD and then um, the aqua battery that you have developed, does it need more than one science discipline to make it or it's only one discipline? Because I see, it's, I see at least two disciplines involved here. Yeah. Well, basically, uh, there, there are many disciplines and, and that's also um, where I work in my other job. Uh, so in, in, in WETSIS, we bring together all these disciplines, all these scientific disciplines. For example, in this case, for the water battery, we need at least maybe four or five disciplines. Electrochemistry is the first one, of course. Um, there are electrodes involved, electrodes reactions. We need membranes to separate the water streams. So membrane science and technology is involved. We need chemical engineering. So that are at least three disciplines. And I think for many, many other disciplines or for many, many other innovations in water technology, we need the least to bring together three to five disciplines to make an innovation happen. Right. And yeah, this, I mean, exactly. This is what, what takes me to Wetzos, your current position right now. And then, um, because it's, it's very interesting what Witsus is doing right now. And then I would, I would give you the floor. You maybe you are the right person to um, give an idea, the origin of Witsus and then yeah. the reason why it has been created for to, 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 to solve what? Yeah. So Witsus has been found in, in 2003. That was the start of Witsus. And actually the purpose of Witsus was to combine scientific excellence with commercial relevance. So to solve current water-related problems in the world, like water availability and lack of water quality. Um, but doing this, not only solving the problems, also creates economic opportunities. And that's very important because um, economic opportunities are actually the key to success. Um, maybe to explain this a bit more is um, water, is very prominent to our economy. And so four out of five jobs are actually depending on water availability. And for the last decade, even water scarcity is listed as a top five global risk for, uh, for economy. So this water dependency in combination with the growing scarcity in the world makes it very important to get enabling water technology uh, for our economy. Um, yeah. 
these innovations we need actually yeah, we, we have a lot of water technology around that to, to to clean water to make water more available like desalination is for example but of course it's not just that we do this with water technology we need better water technology than we have currently available so more efficient more effective more sustainable um, we really need innovations in this field and what we actually realize with wetsus the finding of wetsus is you cannot go to a single discipline and ask for this or that technology that we need. So we need to bring in all these disciplines together, together with companies, and because universities can, can make knowledge, um, but we need also the expertise of the companies and also their know-how about where innovations can land, land and in, in, in society and where the opportunities lay. So we bring them together to make this innovation happen. So that's actually, in short, what we are, um, how we have been founded. Nowadays, we have 130 partners in the WETSAS uh, program. So over 100 companies and uh, 20 universities. And we run a pro program of 60 PSD projects. That's the current state of WETSAS. It's very interesting. And then the way how I can summarize it, correct me if I'm wrong, it's it's an interesting platform that combines it's a bridge between the industry and academia and try to solve the water in a way to bring tangible water solutions. It's not right. like a solution that maybe in next 30 years it can or it might be upscaled, but no, something that can make impact in yeah. what we are right now having yeah sure uh, i just like to mention that we work in a in collaborations uh, on high risk high gain solutions which actually means that if a solution can be found only within a company it doesn't make sense to work together with a multidisciplinary team because then you're close to the solution so if if it's really about optimizing a current membrane or current membrane uh, desalination plant or um, maybe a better way of oxidizing uh, micropollutants. I think that's, that's basically too close to the company. So the company has better expertise than, than academia may have. But really where they need each other is on longer term. But of course, with, with really with a view of potential impact. Mm -hmm. so let's say solutions for the next five to ten years yeah because i think that's that's the the well that's the reasonable i think at least my experience this is a reasonable time for even the industry to bring a new product to the market you need at least yeah at least three four years just to pilot test be sure that what you have it's it's reliable in the real world it's yeah. not like electronic you change your portfolio I mean, I remember when I was with Dow, with the electronic business, they changed the whole portfolio every three years. There's so much innovation is happening. The speed is very fast, while in water, you take a longer time. Yeah, much longer. Yeah, much and longer. also because in water, we, it's, it's also um, by purpose, it's risk avoiding. We don't want to take risk with, with people's health. Yeah. Right. So if we want to, to implement a new technology, we have to be sure that the technology is reliable, especially when it comes to, to well, uh, for example, um, reusing water with all risks on, well, maybe pathogens or micropollutants in the water. We have to be very sure that we have the good technology there. Right. So it takes a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. It's it's it takes, and also from the regulatory standpoint, I would say I think you it takes also. I mean, yeah. you may have very good concept, very good membrane, but when it comes to drinking water certification in Netherlands or in Germany, it's not always easy. You need to have the right products in, in place. And that's actually also why we're working in and with, with companies. We also work with end users, so. Uh, typically, we work with uh, with universities, technolo technology providers, um, 
but also end users are very important in, in this chain because if they don't want to take up this innovation, we will never have the innovation implemented in society. So if they are early enough involved in, in this development of, uh, of the technology, they can already give feedback like this will not work because of this and this reason, because maybe, maybe it's technologically possible, but um, our clients will never accept it because of maybe the risk perception or it will never work because it's too expensive. Well, that's, of course, that's always uh, a big thing in, in innovation if you calculate in forehand what it costs. Uh, but yeah, some, some reality check is needed. In, in the, talking about re this reality check, if, if you see end user OEMs and technology provider, and then academia. So if you look to those stakeholders, not every time they see the solution from the same angle and they see the problem the same way and their needs are the same. So how is challenging for Wetsus really to try to put a common language between all those stakeholders and then put the goals and go ahead? Yeah, it's actually a delicate process of, uh, of talking to each other from the early beginning of, uh, of the research. What are our goals that we have together? Um, what, what is the challenge that we want to, to cover? Um, and of course, it's, it's something that not always um, will go smoothly. And so it it's really takes all the partners to talk the same language. And that's also why we actually want to create a long-term relationship between the partners. So then they really know to get to learn each other's language, also to, to, to get a trust, so to share everything that they, that, that, that they want or to, that they need to share to make this innovation to success. So that's really based on, based on well, I would say, a key factor is, is here is that people or partners must feel assured that their interests, and so the commercial interests for technocom, techno, tech companies, but also the societal um, uh, interests of the end user are taken into account into the, in the innovation. Yeah. That's, uh, well, it's not an easy, as you said, it's delicate, it's very challenging. Uh, way to manage that and then um, if you succeed in that and specifically the other point which is the um, multidisciplinary and this is something that's I believe it's still missing in in classical academia mm. so if you go in classical academia most of the time you find professors on membrane professors and distillation professors and CDI Right. There is no cross collaboration. It's really we find people from professor from biology working professor with the CDI. I don't know why it's like that in academia, but some universities they start to do to change. I mean, in, to change in this direction. Could you just, I mean, um, briefly talk about this point? How it's important in Wetsus and how you use it? Yeah. So. Indeed, so for, for innovation, for new technology, you may need three to five disciplines. So what we actually as, uh, did in our model is we define together with the companies, we define actually the purpose. So the, the challenge that we, that we have to cover. So the, the problem. And then we think about um, a solution, which what, what are the, actually the disciplines that we need? So maybe if we want to build a new center, we need maybe a photonics professor. A photonics professor will never think of, uh, about water technology or maybe occasionally. They, there's not enough um, mass for them in water technology to, to speci uh, specialize on water technology, uh, photonics for water technology. That's, that's not a, uh, something that they will do. But if, they, if we can connect them to our program, 
just by one or two projects running PSD projects in our program, um, they don't need to become a water technology professor. They just can keep their expertise in photonics because they are the expert in photonics. We will bring that water technology context for them. So they nece not necessarily need to know everything about water quality or, or the issues that, that are relevant for water uh, technology. They bring their expertise. We bring it into this multidisciplinary um, environment. And so with companies, with other universities connected to the research, and then together they can make a new sensor. So actually we invite monodisciplinary professors to contribute to water technology, as well as actually also the traditional multidisciplinary professors in environmental technology, for example, or chemical engineering. Yeah, so they, they kind of try to explain it in abstract way to each other. So that's the, let's say, the connecting point between those disciplinary. And then they take it from that point, try to solve. Yeah, so we, we, bring, we bring the problem to the monodisciplinary professor, not asking for the total solution. Okay. So they provide their expertise to supervise a PhD student on new sensor work, whereas we also take, um, and then we also bring in the broader perspective and we supervise the PhD, pro, uh, uh, PhD students more on this um, multidisciplinary approach. So that's also why our PhD students are not located in the university, because otherwise you get another photonics PhD student or another membrane science PhD student. We bring them together in one laboratory based on water technology. So they will interact with bi uh, biology, microbiologists. They will interact with, well, a membrane scientist will interact with an electrochemist. That's very useful, of course, uh, for the example, uh, for example, of this aqua battery concept. Um, so all the disciplines are talking to each other in, in our lab. And about those disciplines, it's, uh, I can imagine, I mean, for a student that you are sitting with this, when, when, with, with the other PhD student who is working, one is CDI, one is membrane, and both of them, they try to solve one thing, but from different angles. And then I think from that moment where it really deep discussion they start between each other okay when does it make sense to use a cdi when does it make sense to use nf membrane so those questions um i mean yeah we you not necessarily learn them when you did master but you should learn them when you get to industry because yeah. then you need to to have okay there is some economical sense behind every technology when to use it and when to combine them together yeah and this brings me to the question, uh, Jan, about uh, the wetsuits. Discovering so many uh, parts in water treatment, would you just, I mean, uh, walk us through the, the research themes, themes that wetsuits is focusing right now? I mean, the things that already achieved and things that she's, I mean, that wetsuits right now is, is covering. Yeah. So maybe um, just to explain how how we are organized and we have 20 research teams. Mm -hmm. So I will not detail them now, um, but these 20 research teams are actually consortia for longer term. So a cluster of companies working on a, cer a certain problem with university partners. And we all do this within PhD projects. So we define PhD projects together with our industrial partners. We ask the professors, to, to make a proposal, and then we will work on it for four years. Um, but many of these research teams are actually uh, there for over 10 years. So they, they exist for longer term. So they have programmed many different uh, PhD projects together on a certain challenge. So if we look to our program, so what, what are we working on? We basically have four main research areas, I would say, or impact areas. So these 20 consortia are working more or less in this one of these four impact areas. And one is sustainable water technology. 
and that's that's really aiming for uh, for the sustainable water supply, both for humans as for ecological use. And they are more or less all aligned around chemical-free natural treatment concepts. So to reduce chemicals and energy use for water technology to get a better water quality, obviously. So that's that's one. And, and actually, there's, for example, desalination or um, advanced oxidation involved. Then we have um, an impact area we call smart water technology. So we have sustainable water technology. We also have a smart water technology or kind of like that's um, based on the protection of health and environment by developing sensors, sensor networks to integrate this with artificial intelligence. Nowadays, very important, of course, um, to get advanced monitoring so that we really know each time what is the status of the water quality, what is the status of the assets, what is the current status of our open water systems. So that's the, the second one. So typically there you have a concept like um, pipe inspection, um, genomics-based water quality monitoring, uh, sensor development. Then the third one is, um, is one that is, that's also very popular, that's recovered resources. So to recover resources from, from our wastewater, to recover, for example, polymers or micro or micronutrients, metals, or energy, like in this example of, uh, of this mixing energy, the blue energy. Um, well, we have a couple of examples there as well. Um, maybe one is very, very uh, compelling, and that's, uh, that's phosphate recovery, and everyone's working on that. Uh, but we found in our program that actually we can recover this very efficient by using magnets. So we put electromagnets around a reactor, a sludge uh, activated sludge reactor, and then we can recover um, iron phosphates, vivianite crystals, just by putting um, a magnet around the, the the reactor, which is, well, not only nice to, well, combine, actually it's combining mining technology with wastewater uh, treatment technology. So that's, that's another example. Um, and the fourth line is actually a new one, relatively new one for us, and that's drought resilience. What is it? Drought resilience. Mm -hmm. So really focused on water scarcity. Um, and of course, you may think then about desalination, but desalination is, is, is something not solving water scarcity. It's actually, it's, it's a measure to, to provide water in water scarce areas. Now, this is really about getting a better balance in the water cycle. So to, to really get water cycles um, restored, redeveloped by aiming, by, by adding technology. So, um, well, the nicest thing is, of course, if a, a water cycle becomes, again, a natural water cycle, but sometimes you really need to put some, some technology into it to get it recovered before it's, it's running again on its own. And we do this by, um, by also working with soil. And we also need to, to, to recover the, 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 the soil to get the water, maybe yeah, to, 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 to retain water, to get a higher uh, absorption uh, or of water into the soils. And that's something that, uh, that we work on as well. So actually when you work on water technology, you also have to realize you're not only working on water quality and water availability, also working on, on other areas uh, like energy and food and ecology, e ecology. I mean, really, you make my brain didn't stop when I looked at those four, four um, area. I mean, classically, 
to my mind, there is wastewater, seawater, brackish water, and then the industrial municipality. Right. But you break them. It makes sense now for me. It makes sense because you break them in a way. Combination of solution because the sustainability, the first one compared to the smart one, smart one is more AI and sensor. The, the third one is recovery of resources from wastewater, as you said. And the fourth one is the drought resilience. And then um, if we can go through those four examples and then you can give us uh, one of the key solutions that Wetsource is working and and already published articles, let's say it's already published. Because I know right. that so many stuff that is still confidential, but only the things that's already published in articles. Right. So um, to give you an example of a sustainable water technology. Um, well, a, a very classical example there is uh, um, that we usually in our centralized systems here in, in, in Europe, we collect all the wastewater into centralized wastewater treatment plants. So actually one of our research teams is, is already from the start of WETSA, so that's already a team uh, working together for over 15 years on source-separated sanitation. So you better can separate urine from faces and you better not flush the toilet with water. So use vacuum toilets instead. Why? Because otherwise uh, you mix everything together and you get the worst matrix you can treat. Whereas from urine, it's actually very um, concentrated in, in, in nitrogen and, and phosphate, so for, uh, phosphorus. So you probably can better recover phosphorus and, and nitrogen directly from urine instead of from the mixture where you've diluted a lot and you add other components to make it difficult. So that's a way of sustainable water treatment. So that's a very classical one and, and we are not unique in, in, in the sense that we work on this, but it's just an example, um, which you may also uh, combine with recovered resources. So you never can build walls between those four research lines. So there's always more impacts in it. Another way, um, example in sustainable water would be, uh, well, for example, use of, um, of uh, advanced oxidation without using chemicals. So normally you do advanced oxidation by adding ozone or by adding peroxides to a UV uh, system. Um, we actually use, or we develop a technology which is based on uh, UV, so ultraviolet light with lower wavelengths so that we actually create the chemicals that we need for oxidation, so the oxidants, directly from the water matrix. So we don't add chemicals anymore. So we just use the light to create chemicals that can be used to break down micropollutants in the water. And then in the end, you don't find, you didn't add any chemicals because you just break down and use these oxidants that you produced in situ, you uh, actually use for breaking down the micropollutants. You, you don't find them back anymore. That's, that were just a few examples of sustainable water. Um, maybe for smart water technology. Um, well, an example there uh, would be on pipe inspection, for example. Um, well, actually, if you look to, 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 to pipe inspection, and there's the problem of leakage from drinking water pipelines. And so pipes need to be replaced once in a while. So maybe after 20 or 40 years. And um, that's, that's a very expensive investment, a very high investment for, for, for society. So in some cases, you may even lose 40% of water. So it's worth the investment, but still it's a multi-billion investment for a country. For example, in the Netherlands only, we have only three to 4% leakage. So it's very low, um, but still we need to replace 2% of our pipe networks, which is 120,000 kilometers per year. And so 
2% of 120,000 kilometers is still a lot. It's a big investment. So what we better can do is inspect those pipelines on their condition. So we, we build sensors, which can be sent through the pipes to actually invest the state, status of the pipe material. Is it like we, a ball that has some sensors that it's going through the water? Well, yeah, there are different methods for that. We developed actually um, a robot which can crawl through the pipeline, so which can also make bands. And, and that's, that's a, quite some uh, difficulties there because the robot, um, well, if it's subsurface, if it's on the ground, you cannot communicate with it via, well, uh, satellites or whatever. It's, it's, it's really underground. It's, it's not so easy to, to give instructions to the, to, the, to the robot. So it should be very self-sufficient. But we can add on this robot, we can add sensors like um, ultrasound sensors so that we can inspect the whole trajectory that the robot is, is, is actually crawling through. Um, imagine if we do this, then, then we can save a lot of, uh, of, of unnecessary interventions eh? because nowadays it's just, uh, we replace a pipe because of the age of the pipe, not so much on, because it's already uh, degraded too much. So this is an example. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I, I mean, I done some podcasts in the past about this topic, which is non non-revenue water, and there's different techniques. But this technique is interesting. And then I'm when I'm thinking the way how you deal with it, you may also pinpoint exactly where you have the leakage, and then you can fix that point instead of removing everything. For example. Yeah, actually, it's not so much about the finding the leakage yes it's more about finding the the, the weaker spots in the pipes okay and so it's it really gives you the, the condition of the pipe wall um when it comes to leakage control we have another um, pc student working on data coming from different sensors in the network and if you look historically to this data and you see some deviations in the sensor data just prior to a leakage or an event, then you know for, uh, and then you can learn for the future how to, to recognize patterns that will cause leakage and also where the leakage will occur. So that's, that's more that data-driven monitoring. So you have inspection, data-driven monitoring, and if you combine these all, of course, then you get prediction models, you get um, more more information based on data like age of the pipes, of the infrastructure and the inspection data, open data, climate data. Um, well, together with these real-time sensors, you can predict where a, a network will fail in future. And then you can do action, take action. There was a second example. I don't know if you are ready for the resource recovery. Yes. Yeah. yeah so I already gave this example of, of Vivianite, and I think that's that's actually a very nice example. And another one, what would be uh, so phosphate is one, but nitrogen is also an important element in in uh, as a fertilizer. So what you also see is that more and more focus comes on the nitrogen recovery. Because now it's actually, in, if you look to the EU, we produce um, a lot of nitrogen fertilizers out of nitrogen gas, and so the air. Um, that takes a lot of energy, whereas on our treatment plant, actually the ammonia, which is available from the urine mainly, we actually have to bring it to nitrogen gas in the, in the treatment plant, causing all kinds of of, uh, of greenhouse gas emissions as well. Whereas actually, later on, we produce it again, um, the ammonia from, from our air. So actually, if we close that cycle on the treatment plant and make there on the treatment plant, we make our fertilizer, it would be much better. That's another example, except for the phosphorus. There are also many other examples uh, of resource recovery nowadays. And um, we also have a plenty of them in, in our program. Yeah, because that's what I learned also in terms of irrigation for the agriculture. Uh, in, 
sometimes you don't need to remove all the the, the stuff that you have in in your wastewater. It's like you can custom made wastewater depending on which irrigation you need to deliver that water. Yeah, I think um, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And it. Yeah, and the, the drought, for example, the last one, which is the drought resistance. Yeah, the, the, that's a, 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 a bit of our new ones. And, and, and of course, that, that also makes, uh, makes it a bit more difficult to explain. But um, let me explain it very well. Um, in some places in the world, you, you already see what, how natural water cycles are actually successfully restored. So... For example, uh, there's uh, there's the Lust Plateau in 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 China, um, where you see these amazing pictures. You look that up in, on the internet. So in 2005 it was kind of desert, and now it's there's growing forest. It's just to take interventions in 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 a, in a water cycle. Um, for example, by reforestation, yeah, so planting trees, but that's often is not enough to get the, the, the water cycle restored and because you, you need to, if you want to have a, a, a healthy water cycle, you need to increase the evaporation, the evapotranspiration actually again. Otherwise it will never rain again. So the, 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 the air above the, the, the water catchment is actually too dry to, to create this rain. I'm not a bit, out of my comfort zone uh, talking about this. So what actually the, the aim is, for example, to increase the, um, the precipitation again in the water cycle just by increasing the evapotranspiration again. And you may need some technologies for that. So you may need, for example, dredging companies to, to dredge um, lakes, for example. So there's also technology involved in that. And um, well, one of the examples is uh, the, the, I think it's called the, the company is called the Weathermakers, or maybe it's the Dutch Weathermakers, but I'm not sure about it. So I think it's the Weathermakers. And they want to regreen the Sinai, Sinai Desert, so in Egypt. Because on the north part of the, the Sinai, you still have you see that there were actually many people living here. Yeah? So there's a, there's a lot of, of potential in that area to, to regain the water cycle. And uh, by not simply uh, uh, doing things, but it may take a decade or two decades to get it green again. And that will, will be a big impact for, for society, for especially, of course, for the region. It's a bit futuristic, I agree. But we like to, to do high risk, high gain. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a very open eye, at least also for me, because uh, when we watch the documentary in National Geography or any uh, other TV program, we most of the time look to, look to the Middle East in some area in the Middle East, they said, okay, so many years they've been, this area were green and somehow yeah. change to deserts. So the question is, if we, if we use the science, is it still impossible to make it green again? That's the question yeah. that I think you are trying to... Well, you, you, you may think that these areas were becoming dry and, and, and desert in, 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 in maybe uh, centuries, but probably actually the, the disaster was 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 much faster, and so people living there for for centuries, and then in, in a few decades it was gone. And the good news is, and that's there are examples in this world. The good news is, it can also be restored in decades. It's not a matter of centuries to to restore these cycles. And that's what the example in China shows. But there are more examples. Yeah. That's world. exactly the point. I mean, the point is you put stress on the scientists and the engineers to to ask them whether it's impossible to yeah. restore it and restore it in short period of time instead of 100 years. Yeah, if there is a tipping point to get the ecosystem destroyed, wouldn't there be also a tipping point to restore? 
And that's actually maybe something that you need to create. And maybe it needs a lot of technology for, let's say, one decade. And so maybe you need to install a desalination plant for this purpose. And of course, the water that you produce with a desalination plant is much too expensive to restore a water cycle. But if you only have to do it for five to 10 years and the water cycle is, is restored again, then you can remove the, the equipment and go to another area. Just as an example, this is not what we are working on exactly, but uh, sometimes investments, well, I think in all cases, investments go ahead of the advantages that you will get. It's just like normal. You first invest and then you get the benefits later. Yeah. Talking about invest, um, if I look to Wetsos, it's also encouraging translating those innovation into startup company. Is it true? Yeah. So um, it's something that we, um, in, in our environment, we see a lot of companies starting up um, around the research we are doing. So mainly it's done by entrepreneurs that are connected to our program. So maybe um, to give you an example, so some companies are bigger companies that join our, our research uh, programs that maybe yeah, they become a member of a certain team, one of the 20 teams, and they found out that it's actually a bit off from their core business. Um, and they also connect to other companies that have the same issue. And then they make together, they, they build a new company, for example, or our PhD students start a new company. And, and that's actually what, what I did, for example. I was a PhD student in the program started my own company on the idea of storing energy in water. I did actually with two other PhD candidates. So we, with us three, and then from that point on, we also were involved as a company in the program. So first I was paid by the companies that, that uh, in, the, in the research, but then I started paying myself and my colleagues uh, okay. as, a, as an entrepreneur. Yeah, but and then, but how how um, you have to see it. it as a point, you need the ecosystem, and one of the things that you need you need kind of financial uh, investments. So, is it Wetsos or the partner of Wetsos who really invests in the ID, or there is venture capital involved, or how does it work? Now, Wetsos is a non non for profit organization and will never get shares in any company. Um, no, I mean, is, no, is it involving also venture capital to invest in the ideas that we're developing? Yeah, so there are cap venture capitalists around us. So there's a whole network um, uh, around us, but it's not, and uh, we are not active involved in that ourselves as Wetsis. But of course, we, we will help to position new companies with new technologies. Okay. So, so for example, we create for, um, uh, for our members, for, for the companies that are co-funding our program, we are creating intellectual property. And so we actually, we are doing both. And we are publishing our results because we are co-funded with public money yes, from, our, from our government. So we will publish our results, but we also create an intellectual property position for our companies. And that intellectual proper, uh, property position is actually that they will be able to get patents that are coming out of the research, that they will get them transferred to their own company. Of course, that will, and we ask money for that, and we ask a success fee for, uh, for, for the benefits that will, they will take. Um, we will invest that back into the research. Okay. So I get the, to, to, just to summarize, which is, I mean, uh, Wetsos is a non-profit foundation. It's a collaborator, and then in the same time, also it 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 has kind of ecosystem for any potential idea that can merge from Westos into an entrepreneurial part. Yeah, yeah, we are part of an ecosystem. Okay. Um, so Westos is really about the scientific research, okay. about the innovation, about bringing parties together to innovate. 
Um, but at a certain point, uh, when the companies become uh, start commercializing these ideas, well, then then we are not involved anymore. So actually, the nicest thing that I can see happening is that other people, uh, that companies, that maybe even other research institutes picking up these ideas. And then we can start new ideas because we are an innovation system. We are not there to, to make our success from beginning to end. Um, if something becomes closer to, to, to market, I think the innovation potential will become less in time. So then we will better start a new innovation, a new creative idea together with our companies for the next 10 years, then that we will follow this innovation from uh, to market implementation. We are not the party to do that. Right. So to keep innovative, we, we need to, to start with new innovations once in a while. Yeah. Is it like, I mean, which is, is any unique in a way that um, what as a platform, is it similar like if I look to Germany, for example, I know there is example of Fraunhofer Institute, Max Planck. There is some institute there that um, they act in the same way. They, they also participate in so many things in energy development batteries, for, for instance, like Fraunhofer. Is it similar to this direction or, or quite different with us to, to those platforms? Mm. Of course, there are similarities. So, so we both research institutes. The only thing is maybe uh, we are actually more taking the leadership in bringing parts together. So other academics, and so actually academics uh, from 20 research institutes together with our over 100 companies, we are bringing them together to make this innovation happen. So we show leadership in this part, um, but we are not aiming to be the specialist in something ourselves. So, um, in many research institutes, you see people uh, working there for life and be, become the expert in this and that field. No, we want to connect to those experts outside from other research institutes to bring them together with our companies. And what I said, uh, at a certain point, maybe a certain expertise is not covered anymore in WEXUS because there's no need for it. So. That's also, I think, a strength eh, that for, from an innovation model that you, you are not sticked to the people that you have. Mm -hmm. There's more innovation potential outside than inside your organization, probably. In our case, we embrace that. So we're always looking for new partners. It is really unique, I would say. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really unique. And then it's, it's kind of very flexible, I would say, in a way that you are not have one specialty that you need to focus the whole life CDI. No, we are looking for water. Whatever technology emerge, we can we can add that ourselves. It's, it's funny to tell you that that's still something that happens. Eh? I, I'm uh, well, I would say people think that I'm always pushing towards a certain technology, electrodialysis, for example, which is definitely not the case. Uh, but but once you're, you're having a certain reputation in a certain scientific field or technology field, then um, of course, then people think that you are actually, uh, that if you talk to him or her, it will be about this topic. But it's, yeah, sometimes it's not the best solution. Eh? So your technology is maybe not the best solution. Maybe there's another, another innovation needed than, than you may think of. And then you need to partner. So be very open. And I think that's also what your podcast is doing. Exactly. It's hunting to solve the problem and without focusing yeah. on, one, on one solution. And then uh, last question, Jan, which is uh, when I look to study the homepage of Wetsource, I found that also Wetsource is offering an education program. So would you just briefly I mean, talk about this program? Yeah, it's a very important part, actually, of innovation. Yeah. Because, um, well... What is actually the, the, the most threatening situation for innovation is actually that you don't have the people to, to, to make it really happen. And so um, uh, then the innovation stops because there are no people that can, can do the job in practice. 
So to address this, uh, WEDSAs have actually um, from all ages we do education. So we start actually really with the, the children. Really? So we have a talent inspiration program for primary and secondary schools. And then in our labs, imagine that they're all people, PhD students, but one day a week, there are even uh, youngsters like 12-year-old uh, uh, children working on a certain water technology. And why do we do this investment in, in that age group? And that's because after 12 years, they get, well, when they are 16, they probably have other interests. They are not interested in technology anymore. But then after 16, the other age group comes from the secondary schools because then they start thinking again about future, about technology. And so that are really two critical points because then they need to choose their studies. Mm -hmm. So that's why they, we have them in the lab as well. We do nice projects, we do contests, well, very lively and, and it's also enjoyable. I mean, it's very nice to see these enthusiastic uh, children and, and, and also young adults. Then we have a, a joint master degree in water technology from three universities in Wetzels. So we have um, bachelors coming in from all over the world doing um, uh, their master, two-year master's degree in, in WETSES. And it's supported by Wageningen University, Groningen University, and um, Twente University. So they get a degree from that university, one of these universities. Then we have a lot of interns, bachelor, master degree uh, interns, um, just on our PhD project. And of course, we also uh, co cooperate with universities of applied sciences. So um, not only with, uh, with, with other universities, but also with University of Applied Science. And last but not least, of course, the PhD students themselves that are the future water leaders. And so we have 60 PhD students in our program. So each year we have 15 PhD students graduating, which are well, I think very relevant for our water technology sector. So if you need a talent, um, well, just ask. Maybe we have, well, basically each month we are delivering one. So that's, uh, that's in short what we do. So you can be in WETSIS from 12 years until your 30s. That's very interesting. And, also, and we, have seen it. we have seen it one, uh, one, uh, two examples actually now going from bachelor's to up to a PhD in, uh, in, in WETSIS. Yeah, there's also an MBA. It's no, it's often MBA. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's also good that you ask. Um, we are also uh, stimulating entrepreneurship among our PhD students, and uh, we had a Marie Curie, um, a grant, uh, which is now um, available for, for PhDs that are starting uh, this year. And they will also get offered a half year of MBA on top of their PhD. So they normally PhD is four years here in the Netherlands. Now we, they get four, point, uh, four and a half years also to, to do some MBA work related to their water technology. Uh, maybe good to tell, if I may. Um, yeah. We will launch our next call for positions so people can apply in March. So each year we start with 14, 15 new projects. So twice a year we, we launch a call for PhD applicants, for applicants for PhD positions. And it will be launched on phdpositions.wetsis.au. So that will be in March. Very good. Thank you very much, Jan. It's really good. I mean, nice talking to you and very interesting what Witsus platform is, 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 is doing. And then uh, before closing the episode, if we do like to share anything with the, let's say, um, I mean, the audience's combination between expert and also a startup company and people who really listen right now to you, they may have an idea also to bring it to the water markets as an entrepreneurial part. So what would be your advice, you as someone who's been working in the industry, did entrepreneur, did, did PhD, so you have you see things differently, how you advise them? Yeah. You advise them? 
I think it's very, very important to, to be open-minded. So in innovations, you really have to, to think well, not only in your own solution, eh, because you're probably locked in, in into your own technology, into your own perception of, of the challenge or the, of the problem that you will solve and the market needs that you are targeting. Be open. And I think it's also good to uh, invest in long-term trust-based innovation systems. So the innovation potential inside your company, inside yourself, is probably much smaller than the innovation potential in such a network because then you bring together people with different perspectives, with different minds. And as long as you can trust each other, and actually there's no other option to trust each other, I think. As long as, as, as the trust is, is there, you can accelerate and you can benefit all. And so not only yourself, but also your peers, the people that you work with. And it's all about people in the end. Excellent. Thank you very much, Jan. Thanks, Hakim.